ATV Talk, the podcast. Sit down with your host industry professional, Leonard Duncan, as the men and women from the ATV world bring their behind-the-scenes stories to life. Every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. And remember, dream big. It could be your story one day. Duncan Technologies International. More than 33 years in the industry building racing programs and ATVs around the world. We build winners. Hi, everybody. I'd like to welcome you to Episode 3, ATV Talk. Today's episode is a very special episode for me because I have a very special man here with me. He's my hero growing up. He was the man that gave me my first ride on a, a 1969 ATC 90, a green one. Um, I was four years old. Ever since then, it's been, I've been hooked into this industry. I love what I do. I love what I, what I get to do. And I hope you enjoy listening to some of the old stories and some of the things that happened in, in the olden days back in the, in the 1970s and, and early 80s, uh, all the way to present day. Our guest today is, is Danny Duncan, one of the founders of the ATV industry. I hope you enjoy the time that we get to spend today with him as much as I do every day. I'm a very blessed man. Thank you very much. Danny, how are you today? I'm fine. Kind of uh, worried about uh, just sitting here talking. <laughs> Well, you know, you, you, you've always, we've always sat and enjoyed and got to spend time talking about ATCs and motorcycles and ATVs and racing. And it didn't matter if it was MotoGP or F1 or, you know, the turtles racing across the street. We always enjoyed it. And, um, you know, I'd like to hear your perspective on, what it was like back in, in 69 and 70 when that three-wheeler came into Valley Motorcycle Sales. Well, we went to a dealer's show, and that was one of Honda's promotional things. They had a bunch of them on stage, and so you could look at them and touch them and everything. And and my first thought was, what an ugly piece of <laughs> I said, who would ever want to ride something like that? Well, the uh, gentleman that I worked for at the time ordered a bunch of them. Uh, and we had a, uh, a parts man at the shop that immediately started doing wheelies out in front of the, the business and doing all kinds of things with this 90 uh, three-wheeler, which in turn, I guess the customers thought it would be fun and they, uh, they started selling pretty good. The hop-up, came shortly after, but we had been, or I had been putting big pistons in in stuff for uh, uh, quite a while before that. And so the first thing we wanted to do is make it have a little more power. And, and so we, uh, 
we took pistons from other Honda models and uh, whittled it down and and uh, started putting big bores in the in this ninety. And uh, I can't remember exactly, but the balloon-tired 90s, you didn't work too well with too much power. It's when they started putting smaller wheels on them and uh, changing the... the uh, Into a rim. How long, how long, what year did the rim come out on? I, I can't remember. It wasn't too long after, but uh, Honda ran a an ad on the TV showing their Hondas, different models, and this little 93-wheeler running down the beach in the salt water with no telling them that you need to wash the salt water off. So it was kind of an epidemic here in San Diego because everybody wanted to go to the beach and they thought that was great fun because you could get have a lot of fun with them in the, in the surf. And uh, needless to say, we had several customers bring them in after they had corroded so bad you couldn't get the wheels off without destroying them. And uh, I was glad to see the balloon tired part of it phase out where the newer models started having uh, uh, rims and, uh, and hubs so that you could change uh, the wheels and tires on them a little easier. Where did the building the intake manifolds and the carburation come into it? How shortly after that did, did, did you progressed off of the big balloon tires or did you, or were you, did you wait to do that until after they had a decent set of wheels? Well, that's been a long time. I don't know how that, but when you're hopping them up, that's one of the first things you do. You put a big piston in, you port it, you, uh, um, change the carburetor and um, some of them we tried to adapt carburetors to the existing manifold and uh, uh, then we made some manifolds and uh, it wasn't long before uh, there was companies that uh, started having stuff made in Taiwan to uh, to put a different carburetor on the, uh, the most of that stuff was cast back then it wasn't uh, it wasn't billet like it would have most likely been today no no because it was way quicker uh, to build one out of tube uh, cook quite a bit of time uh, to set up so we didn't we didn't do a lot of that. At first we did because we couldn't get anything else. And so we made the manifolds for them. But um, after we 
got to the biggest piston we could put in easily. Uh, they started uh, making stroker cranks for them. And uh, uh, between the stroker cranks and the uh, uh, big pistons, uh, we got a pretty good healthy engine. Uh, then shortly after that, uh, I, guess, I don't know, there was several years that the 90s, they were just 90s and they got a little better. And then they came out with a 110. And that was a little bit beefier and had a, a little bit more stroke and a bigger piston to start with. And so I made up piston kits to where I could put uh, different sizes in it. I was going to uh, look that up again, but I can't remember off the top of my head what... Uh, all the different sizes. Well, you're talking early 70s at this point, mid 70s? Yeah, mid 70s. That was a long time ago. I can't remember the uh, the dates. Um, I know that, that uh, the biggest ones that, that I made were 160s, and that was with a Stroker and a and a big piston with a, a sleeve, and the pistons got up over sixty millimeters. Uh, uh, we used on uh, uh, seven fifty pistons for quite a while. We used some uh, pistons from other models for different sizes. We had a a setup to where you run a a 58 millimeter stroker and a 58 millimeter piston and they were healthy but they lived they they weren't uh, they didn't give you problems the 160s you had to baby them when you pulled out on something solid because you could strip out the third gear uh, because they were kind of weak, uh, and you had that much power. It started out at about four horsepower. And what do you think you were getting at? 15, 18. <laughs> yeah. I mean, for a little motor like the, that, that's a lot of change. Uh, the, the more horsepower you got, the more selective you had to be on, on how you used it, because... Uh, do you think that was a trend with the build the, the the manufacturers back then that they built the the most of the product to be so durable that you could get more horsepower out of them because of the 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 design to last versus uh, the design to make them uh, you know planned obsolescence like it is today? No, I I believe that they they built them. To last, basically, because the fact that the general public can just really abuse things <laughs> be, because Honda guaranteed it. So if you went out and just 
rode the hell out of it and broke it, you just brought it back and they fixed it. They modified that over the years, but I seen I seen some warranty work that was pure abuse, and Honda just smiled and gave them a new car. So, uh, do you think that they would analyze those pieces? You think they really went back and looked at how they could make it better? Or do you think they were just trying to build their reputation and brand? I think they were just trying to build their reputation because of the fact that uh, Hondas were, in my opinion, were good from the start. The little uh, step-throughs that they started out with. Uh, I worked for a guy named Sailor Maine that... that uh, sold a lot of those little 50s and uh, and that was the, the that was a step through motorcycle like a, a like a, a glorified well, it's a better than the scooters they sell today um, but yeah, it was a 50 it was cc a, a little 50 and then they they uh, had they started out with the little push rod 50s and uh, they were pretty good uh They'd run, uh, you know, uh, down the street uh, pretty good. Um, but they kept coming up with new models and off of this uh, basic 90. Like I said, the first 90s were push rod. And, uh, and then they went to the overhead cam. And, uh, but... For years, the uh, everything was based off of that original uh, overhead cam ninety, and that, uh, that motor still used today. Yeah, you see versions of it. Uh, they've refined it. Uh, it had a, a good oiling system. Uh, the air filter systems on them uh, from the start. Uh, if you got them out in the in the dirt, uh, you had to really pay attention to it because of the fact that uh, they uh, weren't the greatest. They, they went to they weren't very good. <laughs> Not like some of the stuff that you see today. No, no. The uh, Where they put the air cleaners and everything helped quite a bit because they put them up inside the frame. And so they were not easy to get to. And so uh, customers, just the didn't. owners, just didn't service them like they should. And, uh, and when we modified them, we uh, put aftermarket filters on because you couldn't get the carburetor or bigger carburetor and the, and the angles back to use the stock uh, filtering system. So there was uh, several of the filter companies that made little clamp-on filter. clamp uh, filters for them. Out of necessity because there was no way to make an airbox that would work. No. And, and, uh, uh, 
on the little thing is there, there was just no place to put, uh, you know, an air box. And, uh, I remember on the 110 that Lauren had the white one. We, uh, you had to watch your leg would rub that filter and it would rub on the fender because it was the only way that it came out, you know, it was right there. You know. Yeah, it was there. Uh, I don't remember all the, the, uh, the setups that people adapted to, to that. So when you're, when you were developing the motor parts, the, you were, and this is this is going off my memory as a young child. You, I remember seeing you have pistons welded on the top, and then you would put them in the mill and mill them down to a specific size. Was that for raising the compression ratios to match the uh, stroker cranks that you were putting in the motors? Because uh, I know you did a ton of it out there. I mean, the mill was constantly well, running when I first first started we didn't have the strokers and um, so most of it was head work and uh, and the pistons and um, yes I I would buy pistons and I weld the top up and uh, then mill them in so that uh, when you played the the cylinder when you put a cam in there, um, you had to make sure that the valves didn't get tangled up in the piston. Who was your cam grinder back then? Uh, Kenny Harmon's built a lot of them. Uh, I know that we, I know that we use Megacycle a lot now. I mean, I was just wondering. When did they come into the picture? Megacycle came in with the the one eighty fives and the, and then the two hundred X's and and I got I had such good well before uh, Megacycle I uh, used a guy named Norris. In fact, the owner of the company was first name was Norris and he had a employee that was a Norris and they made uh, bitching cam and uh, and needle bearing rocking arms for uh, for the 185s and then the 200 X's and, and a variety of other models it, what year do you think the 185s came out 81 no it had to have been before that no. Oh. In the 70s at some, some point, right? At well, some point. I remember that was the big thing, and it was uh, solid. It had no suspension. The tires were the suspension. And so we uh, uh, built trouble clamps and got forks off of other things and, and put suspension on them on at least front suspension. So the so the guys racing today, if we took them back in time, how do you think they'd do with some of that rigid stuff that you that you go with? The front runners have enough talent. They did just adapt to what what was there. You want to race bad enough, this is what there is. You race what it is and 
and uh, you're racing against competition that has to run basically the same thing that you do. Uh, we always tried to uh, give them a little more power, a little everything, but uh, the hop-up stuff uh, was a lot of carryover from the little minis uh, that came out. They called monkey bikes and, and minis. They were a little 50cc uh, short wheelbase uh, bike, and the first ones of those had about an inch and a half of fork travel and, and solid rear suspension. And <laughs> We put 90, <laughs> big board 90 top ends on a bunch of them. And they were fun to ride, you know. And uh, Is that the same, the PE50 that you broke me in on and Lauren in on? Is that, is yeah, that what you're that, basically... that 50 is, uh, is this, what, that's... That's where I started moonlighting, and and the dealership that I worked for would would sell the guy one, and I'd take it home and make it a little faster. <laughs> a good deal, right? There. Oh, it was, it was fun. So you started hopping that style engine up before the '90s came out, so you already had an idea where you were going to go, kind of. On the development for the the, the engine portion, yeah, because we had a there was a shop down the street, uh, Don Vesco's shop, and the crew down there thought that their bikes were faster than ours, so we decided to hop up one of the demos, but we didn't tell the owner. <laughs> and it outrun the, the uh, Yamaha from down the street. And <clears throat> they, uh, unbeknownst to them, it was uh, had a big piston in it and they sold it. And uh, the guy, uh, it, had had it for a little while and it leaked off some oil, so he was going to have to replace the, the gasket. And uh, I don't remember exactly what happened. Anyway, uh, my boss got my boss got uh, a little anxious about hopping it up and wanted to know was going to give the guy a complete new top end stock. And the guy says, "No, no." I I want it the way it is, you know. <laughs> I just don't want it to leak. Uh, and so it was so funny because uh, he liked it. it he liked it. It was it was one of the last of that model because they went through a, an overhead cam ninety, so the pushrod nineties were were on their uh, way out. Were on their way out, and so that all worked well, but the Tommy told me he, uh, he didn't want that to happen anymore. <laughs> so uh, we couldn't, uh, we had to take stock 
bikes and and race against uh, Vesco's with stock bikes. Yeah, because he had Yamahas and we had uh, uh, Hondas, and it was a a fun rivalry. So when you got farther into the development of the ninety one tens and were racing them uh, at Speedway one seventeen. And we roll into the, the later 70s. A big change happened in your life. And you no longer worked at the dealership because you started your own business. Right. I, I, I had been, um, I had an arrangement with uh, the shop for that I would, Bring the uh, all the work through the dealership, and if we had to take it apart or put it back together, that it would be done on the uh, and the shop would get paid for the time, but for the port work and the bogo, uh, the uh, the other things that I do or went to them. Uh, Borna cases and this and that, uh, I would charge. And I tried to talk him into buying a mill and and he uh, he didn't want to become a speed shop. Uh, so I bought a mill and a lathe and, and done a, a whole lot of, uh, of that type of work uh, here at the shop. Basically, self-taught machinist. Yeah, I I worked as a, an aircraft for a number of years, so I was familiar with with uh, the machines, and you know, and uh, I uh, I bought a, a mill and a, and a lathe, and I had. Two boring bars, and for quite a while, I uh, I bored cylinders for quite a few of the shops in town because everybody that bought a a little ninety seemed to want a, a at least a big bore piston in because it made it made a noticeable difference. I hated scraping those gaskets. God, they were horrible. <laughs> oh my God! So. 1977 rolls around. Danny's Machine Works opens up. You are building engines for... I built engines for uh, Ricky uh, Johnson and uh, done the service and everything on his. And that was kind of why I done a lot of motorcycle work. And I called it Danny's Machine Works. And nobody ever saw the connection. They thought Danny's Machine was a machine a machine shop. And yes, I had machines, but to do the job at hand. And uh, it wasn't until uh, quite a number of years later that uh, the name was changed to uh, Duncan Racing. 
but wasn't there an affiliation with a uh, company that was helping support the racing guys, the, the team that you had with uh, the three-wheeler stuff? Yeah, I, in somewhere around the 80s when, when three-wheeling magazine first came, uh, they formed a a group uh, and Big Al's motorcycle parts, which they were uh, one of the bigger companies that sold uh, pistons and big bore pistons and cams and everything. And all of that came out of Taiwan. And uh, uh, and I uh, done the engine work on, on uh, I think there was six of them. There was quite a few of you. Well, we can go back and look at the cover shot of the magazine because it was the first edition ever shot by Three Wheeler Magazine. Yes. And you're standing on the cover in the background, as always, never wanting to be in the front. Yeah. Yeah, that was uh, Joe Phillipson, which had been the parts man at Valley when... Uh, when we were both there, and uh, and he uh, he was involved in it, and uh, uh, there was a sign painter, which I can't remember his name now, but uh, he done all the paint work and artwork for the for the group, and. Uh, We held our own in the competition. Uh, Which we've talked over the years, uh, 3B Lightning had some stuff going on and they were uh, just down the street from the shop. Well, when you moved into Santee, when you were here in Lakeside, uh, there was nobody around us. But when you moved down into Santee, 3B Lightning, was down the street or across the airport um, and they had their own set of guys that were riding different styles of machines, mostly some um, custom design stuff where you were doing mostly production models, correct? Mm -hmm. Yes. And uh, uh, well, I built engines for quite a a variety of, of racing we built uh, i built xr75s for the minis and and i built uh i worked on just a variety of different engines because well the xr75 era for you was valley motorcycles and yourself but you were also fielding you know you had ricky johnson and Scott Myers, Myerskoff. No, Myers. Myers. Scott Myers. Myerskoff was a Yamaha. He Sorry. was on the other side of the... My mistake. Yeah. Um, so you had Myers and uh, for some reason, I'm missing a couple of the names of the kids. 
Warren wrote on there, Steve Walker wrote on there. Uh, and there was a couple other guys that, that all, all of them became forces to be reckoned with in their, in their specific uh, discipline where Ricky became a supercross star and an outdoor star. Steve Walker was uh, super fast in the desert. We knew Burnsworth, and he was no slouch in the Supercross. Never got to Ricky's status, but he was he was a good rider. Uh, you became friends with uh, Dick Lachine. Yeah, Dick owned, I believe they owned Lemon Grove Honda, and we. We both built engines for, uh, it started uh, when I met him uh, around the time that we were doing the minis because he had a, a son that they built stuff for and uh, and uh, I bought parts from him and then I bought uh, uh, fuel and oil when he Progressed into uh, what yeah. the hell is the name? Maxima. Yeah. Maxima ra racing product. Yeah. Nobody would know his son, Ronnie Lachine. <laughs> I mean, that, that's well. During this time, it all kind of run together: the three wheelers, the uh, the motorcycles. Uh, We uh, we raced uh, whatever model was the most popular, and it went from the ninety one tens. We also done done a whole lot of seventies because the seventy class was popular because uh, they were small, but they were fun to ride, and they were easier to almost to ride than than uh, the ninety one tens because. There was so much body English to get the 110 to go the direction you wanted it to, where the 70 was uh, was a, a fun bike to ride. And it was actually uh, pretty good for kids because it was more like a tricycle and, uh, you know, and it steered the broke, direction you wanted to. You broke your kids in on them and your grandkids and your grandchildren, your great grandchildren are, are, are riding them also. So some of the seventies that, that came from that time frame, you know, are still in the family today. Well, I, I bought a 70 for my first granddaughter. And after watching her ride, I detuned it because <laughs> it went she went way faster than I wanted my grandkid to go. Uh, I, I haven't watched, but one of my grandkids ride too much, and uh, and uh, yeah, I don't. It it, it it doesn't unnerve me as much as some things, um, but I get it. That means that I have six grandkids, you know, that are your six of your great grand grandchildren. Yeah. So we roll into, we've, we bounced around all through the 70s, a little bit into the early 80s. 
Danny's Machine Works is is a force to be reckoned with in at Speedway 117. You've you've made a name for yourself. Um, Lauren and I are still young at this point. As you roll into the 81, 82, 250R era, you do some 252 stroke porting and some motors. You, you start, we start, the, the racing those starts become more prevalent than riding the, the um, older four strokes because the 250s had so much more power. Well, the, the beginning of the 9110 era or the end of it was when the, uh, when the 185s came out, um, they started with more horsepower and, uh, uh, they just were, uh, they were instantly, I thought popular. So we started doing the same thing to them, you know, big pistons, uh, Strokers, um, we had problems because of the setup on the first ones. The the clutch had a had a different type of a clutch, and uh, we worked with uh, Barnett Tooling. They built clutches and uh, and done a lot of clutch work. And uh, we worked with them and developed a, uh, a setup. And then like everything, the, the new models came out uh, and Honda had changed. So uh, hopping things up, uh, it seemed like you had something new to deal with every uh, so many years. Uh, one of the most fun projects was the the 200 X's. Uh, we developed, or I developed, uh, quite a few things, and it was all basically the same thing. Uh, you make the displacement bigger, and the uh, make everything lighter, and uh, and it just tends to make more more horsepower and that's uh we got into mega cycle cams uh, with the 200 x with the 200 x is where uh, really started and i'm we've been using them you know almost exclusively on everything you know since then oh they're a great company to work with oh. but so you developed oil cooler for the 200 x you developed the small body Makuni carburetor that you used on that machine. Um, you worked with making it start easier because stock form, they, they didn't start very stock. Hard. They got hot, but they were, they were hard to start. When you put the different carburetor on them and hot, cold, they started easy. And, uh, um, They had a shifting issue that you had a fix for. Yeah, uh, all of this kind of uh, things. Um, a lot of things that you fix. Um, uh, there's other people out there doing the same thing, so you never 
it's hard to know, you know, who was the one that, you know, figured it out. Uh, it's kind of straightforward repair. If it jumps out of gear all the time, you take the, take the gearbox apart and find out where the mismatch is. Right. And then uh, we had some spacers, so you move the gear, or put the spacer on the other side and uh, do a little, uh, I believe I'd done a little grinding on something to make everything work better. The problem went away. Well, the 85 three-wheeler sent us, why I say us because I was trying to ride at the time, into a different realm because in our local area, Verona Oaks, or Verona, uh, Hidden Valley Speedway, where's where we raced three-wheelers, and, and uh, the very first version quads got raced there too. But... Uh, we were pretty much the dominant force up there. Uh, Vase was was a, a competitor, and and uh, Scribs was was another guy that would come. And there were people that would come uh, all the way from uh, L.A. That's how I met Mike Mead. From at the time, it was just Mike Mead, but as some people know it in the industry, it was MMF, and then it, now it's AC Racing. Um, other people, I'm sure, came through that realm that. I probably was too young to realize who they were or remember the, the the names. But as that transitioned for us, we started transitioning into going to the big races. So we went to Porterville. Um, we went to uh, Washougal, or we went up to Washington and raced. Um, this opened up a whole new avenue for for you building the 200X motors for a, a bigger venue of people. Yes. Uh, I got uh, a lot of uh, engines shipped in that uh, just amazed me at times that uh, uh, our circle of uh, performance was ever widening. You know, and uh, um, that that well, yeah, and that that led. Uh, you had a guy working for you, and he did a side project for you on an eighty-two two fifty R. And this is an older machine that okay, we've passed we've passed its day. We're into the water cools, but you had this air cooled three wheeler. And you guys did a side project thinking that you could create an IRS three-wheeler. Oh, yes. Yes. <laughs> we still have the we pieces. We still have it. Uh, in theory, it worked fine. And in the sand, it worked fine. But if you jumped it into a hard deal, the... Uh, the chain and brake and everything was, you know, was too low, and it got tangled up in the uh, in the ground. In, in the ground, I know it didn't turn, uh, but going straight sure was a thrill. <laughs> well, it, it it had its limitations, and and uh, we didn't know how it was going to respond until uh, we built one, and. Uh, 
and then took it out and uh, tried to write it. And as long as you were in the sand so that the, uh, the sprockets and everything could bury themselves in the, in the dirt, it worked okay. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. It was an eye catcher. It still is. A lot of people still really like enjoy looking at it. Um, that that three wheeler sitting out in front of Danny's Machine Works on on the boulevard down there in, in Santee, which was Prospect Avenue, it was a pretty busy street at the time. And uh, a young man in a Toyota pickup on his way to the dump drives by and stops to look at it. I don't know if you remember this day, but I do. I'm a young kid, nobody. And um, Lauren spent time talking to him, which this would change all of our lives and we wouldn't even, didn't even really know it. Um, that was Marty Hart. I, I didn't. <laughs> yeah. And Marty, Marty spoke with Lauren for a little bit. It was on a Saturday. Um, did his thing, went to the dump, came back, and they stood and had a long conversation. And that started their relationship. And that was 86. That's right about the time that we closed and moved it back up. Moved it back into Lakeside. Yep. And uh, 87, uh, Lauren became Marty's mechanic. And the rest of that portion is kind of history. I know we, we, we've skipped all over the place and you were a motorcycle racer in the fifties and the sixties, a little bit in the seventies, uh, when you're yeah. until you're, until as you tell it, your, your two little fat sons needed to eat rather than you go, you going racing. So did you learn all of the, tricks about doing engine modifications from racing back in the day or was it something as you developed into modifying the machines because you worked at the dealership well when i i got into racing i was working in aircraft uh back in the in the uh, 50s there was a lot of uh uh, work done on uh, in aircraft, uh, modifying tooling to for updates. Uh, working, they were a lot of job shops, is what they called them at the time, and uh, uh, there was a lot of work. And I, uh, I always wanted to work with my hands. I started out as a box boy in a grocery store, and uh, I just. I, I wanted to build things and I got a chance to uh, work in a job shop. Well, at the same time, uh, uh, I wanted to, I wanted a motorcycle. I wanted to go racing. And in the area where I lived, there uh, was a uh, kind of an area like a slough. It was kind of a big drainage dish that turned into a lake, and everybody went out there and rode. I guess every area has a spot like that in town where they. Anyway, I uh, I bought a matchless in 1953 
iron barrel uh, single cylinder matchless, and uh, it was a 1953 model, and this was 1956. And uh, uh, when I bought it from the dealer, it started, and shortly after, uh, uh, I had difficulty in starting it. And they leaked oil. Anyway, uh, I was not a mechanic. And uh, I raced it uh, a couple of times, uh, desert racing, uh, which I did not like. I, I always figured I, I wanted to uh, see where I was going, that bouncing through the desert uh, at high speed. Uh, not knowing what the train's going to change. Anyway, uh, I thought early on I wasn't going to be a desert racer. <laughs> uh, I have some good stories about different times. Uh, I raced in the last official Big Bear race that they had, which was a an annual that uh, had been going on for a number of years. And it went from the desert to uh, Big, Boar, Big, Boar, Big Bear City. And uh, anyway. How uh, many guys were in that race that you remember? The, there was over 1,500 on the starting line. And the very last race, uh, they had a false start, and about 400 guys started on the false start, me being one of them. And at the time, I was riding a Jawa that was set up to run alcohol. And uh, uh, anyway, for the first unofficial lap, I done real good. Uh, at one time, I was uh, going out across the desert floor, and uh, uh, I was in a like a dust cloud, and I could see the bike in front of me barely, and I decided that I was going too fast, I just because I was wide open on this thing, and. I don't know, maybe go 60, 70 miles an hour. And I decided to slow down. And as I kind of eased off on the throttle, a wheel come up under my elbow. Uh, the guy behind me started coming up and I decided, well, I can't slow down. I'm going to get run over. <laughs> and so all uh, said, so we're going along and, uh, and then we came out of this dust cloud, and there was about seven of us in this one little tight jam there. I don't know how we all got so close together, and nobody fell off. And uh, and within sight of the pits, I ran out of fuel. Uh, just using more. I had a big tank on the bike. Anyway, that. That uh, did that teach you that you should that, stop for the pits? Well, it, it taught me that just because you can go fast, 
you know, on a desert, you got to, you know, in order to finish first, you must first finish. And, uh, and I had things backwards. Anyway, uh, when I, I uh, lived up in Los Angeles when all this was going on, and then I moved to San Diego, and uh, I, uh, I bought another bike, one that was a race bike, and uh, extremely slow, but I, uh, I started racing in, in uh, San Diego and immediately found out that this race bike that I had bought uh, uh, needed repair. And <laughs> I didn't know how to do it. And at that time, you could get repair manuals for bikes that were built in the 20s. But there was hardly any, nothing like it is today where you can buy uh, a service manual, service with your, manual with your and everything. Uh, you could buy them for the the new bikes at the time, but to get it for older bikes, um, and this motorcycle that I had was a dot, which uh, supposedly meant devoid of trouble, but that's not what it meant. That's not what it meant. Anyway, and it came from England, and if you. Uh, uh, at that time, I thought that you needed to put stock parts on on things that you didn't make things, uh, and so my idea of of uh, what you needed to be to be a racer was quickly changed in the fact that I couldn't afford to take it to a shop, so I uh, I started doing things myself. And uh, uh, one of the first things I found out on these bikes was that uh, the filter systems were almost non-existent on, on the older models. They came with a uh, little housing, and I don't know if you know what chorgirls are, but it's a, uh, uh, like copper shavings that's in a little pad and uh, it keeps the rocks out. It didn't, didn't keep the dirt out. It kept the keep rocks the dirt out. out. It, it would keep the, the rocks out. You, you needed to keep the dirt out. So I, I found a, a, a filter set up on uh, that, that would work. And uh, mainly just at that time, I was just maintaining my own bike. And, uh, I sold the dot and I bought a little BSA single and uh, uh, started racing and uh, it needed repairs. This is at a time where I knew nothing. And so I did go down and, and uh, I bought a parts book and a shop manual because I found out that if you look in the parts book, it tells you what parts are there. And the shop manual gave you a vague idea of how it was assembled so that you knew um, 
how many warshers were in there, spacers were in the transmission, and, and it give you a good idea of how things work. So as I started working on my bike, and uh, and later on, I everything that I worked on, I wanted a shop manual and a parts book. And somewhere along the line, they went to microfish, but... Uh, a lot of times when you're taking engines apart, there's bolts that hold the cases together that you don't see or they're not obvious. So I found that uh, if at first it doesn't come apart, there's usually a reason. <laughs> <laughs> I remember that. I remember that lecture. Well, uh, what are you doing, kid? What, if I heard a hammer in the shop, I started wanting to know why. You know? I, I remember that. That's not how I taught you to take that apart. <laughs> but, uh, but it's one of the first things is I thought that everything was stock. You didn't screw with it, you know. And then I, uh, I had my BSA apart because it was smoking pretty bad. So I was getting ready to buy a piston and have it bored because I didn't have any tools or anything. I was over at a very good friend of mine's house, and he had a BSA, and it was extremely faster than mine. And he had a habit of when he'd take things apart, he'd lay them out on the bench and put a rag over them. Well, he went in the house for a cup of coffee, and I picked up the rag, and I'm like, that piston is a lot bigger than mine. <laughs> <laughs> and so, I uh, I started investigating and found out that he had a big bore. made they didn't make it. He made the big bore from a another model BSA, and if you whittled a little off of the top, it uh, it went right in and made lots more power. So that that's kind of where. That's where I got the idea that, hey, it makes them go faster if they're bigger. And at that time, uh, the association, you had a limit on how big the piston could be, and it was 80,000s over. Well, that's a, that's a know, lot. quite a bit. You know? And so that told me to, uh, you know, I bought a, I got a bigger piston. and. And put it in, but uh, uh, trying to get information about how things worked. Uh, the motorcycle magazines at that time showed you pictures of bikes, but it didn't show you how tos. It was a uh, rare that it it would show exploded views of of exotic things. Uh, at that time, the Honda fours were you know a work of art they had uh, uh, several different uh, four cylinder machines that were running in Europe and and uh, so I I would read the car magazines and every article they talked about taking weight off the flywheel well a motorcycle flywheel and a car flywheels a little bit different, but I thought if they're 
lightening up everything that moves. And so I started lightening up the things that moved on mine and made a world of difference. So when I went to work for a dealership, because aircraft kind of collapsed in the early 60s, and so I needed a job, and I I went to work for uh, you can Edison edit this out. Edison Die. Edison. I went to work for a guy named Edison Die, which I've read articles of what a uh, he brought motocross to America. And I worked for him for quite a bit of time. Uh, and at the same time, I, I was the parts man, the, the salesman. I'd done a, a little bit of everything. And then I worked on the, uh, servicing bikes and everything. And a lot of this is, you know, self-taught. I went to several, uh, dealer schools where they would uh, show you how to work on their product. And all the time I uh, I would work on pop-up jobs or work at my house and, and different things. Uh, I was a big fan of four strokes. Uh, well, you're happy nowadays. Yeah, uh, two strokes were a very, uh, uh, I'm looking for a word, uh, you do a little bit to them and you could get some good results out of it. But I liked the four stroke, especially when I was racing, because the fact that I liked the fact that when I turned the throttle off, it slowed down. <laughs> With a two-stroke, it doesn't always slow down. Uh, and the brakes that you guys had back then were horrible. Yeah. First time you made me ride one of them Triumphs you put together, I thought I was going to die. I'm grabbing the brake and it doesn't stop. No, even uh, at best, the, uh, they were were not good. That's why they invented disc brakes, so that uh, we could stop that shit. Well, as the transition, you know, into back into our 80s, early 90s transition, you went to work for um, Convair and Lauren kind of spearheaded Danny's Machine Works and turned it, turned it into Duncan Racing um, with the development of the relationship with with Paul Turner and Marty Hart, it ended up he ended up taking over Paul Turner as well. So you're looking um, early '90s, and things are developing. You know, in '89, Marty won a Mickey's title, and then his his time had passed with riding ATVs, and Lauren worked with guys like uh, Charlie Shepard and Mark Earhart, and Lauren goes international to Japan. With a bike that I built, uh, 
we took a 250, it was a 250R. That, that's a little later, the one that went over to Europe and where they put the CR500 in. Yeah, I put a CR500 and they yeah. went over there and won a big race. And but the one that he went with Charlie was a 250. But what what I'm what I'm hunting for is your reaction to the change in our geography. Because we're no longer Lakeside, Santee, El Cajon, or San Diego. We're now international. And you see a huge change in the development of the company that you started. And I'm looking for a perspective here. Well, I look back at that and and I felt that that the some of the stuff I built in racing, when we went to local races, we were uh, competition. And when Lauren took over, we started being competition everywhere we went. We built the same engines. We uh, we hooked up with uh, good riders and everything all over the world, you know. And we built turnkey quads for a lot of years and sent them to places where. You didn't think there was any money, <laughs> or or that there was ever a race to to race, you know. So, yeah, I, I mean, at this point in time, for me, I was I was uh, not paying attention a whole lot. I was trying to race locally myself, um, and working. I didn't start working directly for Lauren. I worked for you. But in 86, I started, or 87, I started working somewhere else, uh, trying to build houses for a little while. And I came back to Lauren in in 90, or 89, excuse me. Well, even though I went to work in, in aircraft again, I went back to work for Condor, I, I never missed a day. I had a day job and a night job because I still did a, a lot of R&D work, machine work, boring. Uh, somewhere along the line, we bought a Surdy and You still work for the shop, Dad. You're 85 uh, years old, and you're still working in the engine facility with Lauren. Yes. Um, I, um, I liked... I liked having a list of things to do where I didn't have to talk on the phone. I hated that because of the fact that I can remember getting to work in the wee hours of the morning, the phone would start ringing, and a job that I'm supposed to have out, I I, I answer the phone and I forget what job I'm working on because there's so many, I've got so many of them set up and I just, I got tired of working that way. I, I was, I was glad that Lauren stepped into the, the driver's seat because I like it when I know what I'm going to do 
And when I get done with that, there's, some, there's I, another I, list. I don't have to talk to people on the phone. <laughs> I, I like people, but I don't want to talk to them, especially when I've got work to do. But uh, no, that worked out well for. Uh, I think it worked out well for him and me because of the fact that uh, I had I worked so many hours. When I was done, I went home. I didn't have to sweat the small thing. Well, yeah, he took over the brunt of it, and 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 I get that. I mean, I came to work for him in '89, and and um, started learning uh, my trade or, or my craft. You know, I'd learned a lot of mechanicing from you, and and some some light machining. So, you know, I was I, I think I was an instant help to Lauren because I could work on the machines and I didn't need a lot of overseeing, even though Lauren oversees everybody. <laughs> you can't do anything for that guy without him looking over your shoulder or checking on it. When his mother was involved in things, she she was the same way. You know, I kind of I kind of have some tendencies when I'm working with individuals to do some of the same stuff, to, to, to look over their shoulder or to check on them. You know, not as much as Lauren does, but you know. Well, I, I, I kind of have liked the uh, the transition because when we're doing development work, uh, it uh, it's nice not to have to have your train of thought interrupted every ten minutes with the phone ringing, and. To, to be the guy on the phone, you have to, you know. You almost have to just do the phone. You just do the phone because the fact that. Uh, I mean, I love working in the shop and I know that through the years, my role has ended up probably not where I would have picked for myself, but that's where the company needed me to go. So that's what I've done. I spent a lot of time on the phone. Spend a lot of time invoicing on the calendar, on the emails. Uh, I do what I can for for the company the best that I can. I mean, I love my my heart and soul is into the racing and what we do there. I mean, that's that that's just I, I love I love the racing portion of it. Maybe I was never the racer that I ever could have been, but. I love going to the races. It's just, you know, well, I I loved racing. I just couldn't afford to race, and, and uh, there wasn't enough hours in the day to make a living and work on a race bike and and go racing because it's time consuming. Well, when you when you are a independent and you work in the industry and your job is to prep other people's machinery and do other jobs like that, it kind of ruins your racing career or your riding hobby because you don't have the times to do it. Well, I always thought that that having a business ruined a good hobby because that's what it started <laughs> out as. But uh, uh, I lost my thought. Looking back, I, I, go ahead. Looking back, I 
I liked times when we had writers because of the fact that I liked it when it was my bike. And, you know, I can remember uh, back when we had the minis, the damn bike isn't for you to sit on and lounge on or um, play with. It's here to race. I don't want somebody screwing with it or sitting on it or twisting in the daubs, you know. Right. And uh, I'm still very much. I I went round and round with several uh, young guys when we were doing minis, and uh, and then as time gone, you know, it's. I put a lot of time into some of those race bikes and I didn't want them screwed with uh, and not be ready to race because everybody seems to want to twist any dials or or knobs or, you you know, working for people on their machines, you know, it's their machine. You're just the guy that, you know, put the time in and did all the work and set it up and, some people don't see the hours and the sacrifices you make to do those things. And they don't see how much blood, tears, and sweat are in them. It's just like we have a very good friend that I was working on his bike and I told him to leave it alone. And he came in while I wasn't uh, in the shop and started touching things and pushing it around, caught it on fire and, and, uh, Made a hell of a mess out of things. Well, yeah, it's just, you know, I mean, I get it. I I would definitely prefer and preferred owning the machines that rolled out of the trailer for the races. When you you work for somebody for their program, it's one thing. And you're not the shot caller. I mean, you make 80% of the calls, but it's that that 20% you got to watch out for because you may have to direct it. In a different direction, they're they're going they're going right. We need to be going left here. You're going the wrong way, and and you can't always you can't always get them to go where you need to go. Most of the time, it works out. You know, you're you you know they start understanding. You know, hey, I've been doing this for a long time, and I understand what your goal is, and I understand why you want to go do that. But that's not what you asked me to do, and that's not what you asked me to set up. Well. I don't know if we want to get into this part of it. I, most every guy you build an engine for wants one that he can walk through the corners and get on the straightaway and pass everybody and then slow down and creep through the corners. Hey, and, it's, it, uh, it, it, it hasn't changed in, in the 50 years that you've been doing it. It hasn't changed. And no, not everybody understands the, the nuances of making a machine fast or making a machine go fast it's it's momentum you don't want to lose your momentum you have to keep your momentum through the turns uh, you know, well I, when i was younger and i was wanting this huge horsepower and a, a rider told me he says if you want to go faster is leave it on longer and turn it on sooner and, and that's still true today yeah you drive into the corner deeper and you come on sooner so that you don't lose the momentum, um, you know, 
we've kind of got into an area in conversation here that, that that's fun and I really enjoy it. But what I was, I want to, I want to go back into our conversation okay. part of it and perspective. When you go back to that first day when you saw that 90 and then you sit back now and you look at where we are and what it's become, what's your, what's your overview or what, what would you have to say about that? Well, the, the, uh, the 90, I never thought it would go anywhere because when I, the first time I saw it, I thought it was an ugly, who would want one? And that proved me wrong because lots of people wanted them. They wanted them to go faster. And um, they were just one of the uh, the errors where uh, I don't know how many years they really lasted, but uh, people enjoyed racing them and they enjoyed uh, uh, just playing around out in the desert, going up the, you know, seeing who could get up the hill the fastest. Um, uh, they were just a, turned into a really fun thing to, you know, to have. Uh, I never thought I'd be making a living off of them, uh, <laughs> you know, when I, when I saw them. Uh, but they changed pretty rapidly from the first ones that were there with the bloom tires. Uh, just the, the tires made a world of difference in uh, in the bikes. But uh, look at today. Did you ever envision any of this? No, but then I... I... Looking at the motocross, the bikes and everything, there's so much, uh, they are kind of signed like a work of art. And, uh, and right off the shelf, they haul ass. Um, this is a family show. <laughs> anyway, uh, if if they keep making them as good as they do, it's going to be harder to make a living off of fixing. Yeah, well, we can count on the general public to destroy them. You know, I mean, don't change the oil or don't clean the air filter. You know, don't tighten the chain. I mean, there's 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 just the normal things that people aren't going to do. You know, look at the UTV industry. They're destroying those brand new daily. So, well, yeah, Um, not to along along the uh, time that we were doing the uh, the ninety one tens, the nineties. Uh, their era was fairly short. Because then the, the one tens came along, and uh, the engines were easier to to work on, um, mainly because things got a little bigger, cylinders, and 
anyway, anyway um, um, along in that period of time, as there was a couple of insurance companies that decided that they would insure motorcycles. They were short-lived because of the fact that they insured race bikes. And guys would buy these motocrossers for play bikes and go out and fall off of them and bend the tank and the bars and the forks and come in and get all new stuff. And the insurance paid for it. And that I thought it was funny because that didn't last too long. They found out that that was a bad, bad investment, bad market to uh, to insure because of the fact that you knew a dirt bike was going to be fall on the ground once in a while. And uh, well, anyway, it was just a, one of the things that I thought was funny is. As I worked in the dealership. Well, I really appreciate you sitting down and spending some time. I know that you and I talk all the time, and and I've been very blessed to have a teacher such as yourself uh, to guide me through life. Uh, that we that's a whole nother conversation, but I would like to see if we could maybe get you to come back and and do another episode and uh, talk, uh, you know, bring it into the future, maybe talk some old racing, you know, just see where the conversation goes because the perspective of where we were to where we are, it's pretty overwhelming if you look at the, if you look at the history of, of, of the family and, and where we go and what we've done. And, and, you know, we're no better than some of the other people in the industry as far as the things that there's been other people that have accomplished great things. Don't get me wrong. Um, and yes, I'm biased and yes, I'm prejudiced uh, because I, I believe that uh, it's pretty incredible. You know, I'm sitting here with a legend and yes, it's my father. And yes, uh, most of my friends and most of the people that I grew up with have come to you throughout the years and you've fixed so many things for so many of them. I mean, there's hundreds of people that, that, that I know that you saved their weekend or got them out so that they could go riding or, or saved a race for somebody because you could remove a nut or a bolt that was broken, or, you know, you could, you put a motor together for somebody at the last minute and, and got them to, got them out somewhere with, you know, through a, uh, an event or through just to go to the desert, you know, I mean, I remember working till two or three in the morning with you just to get everybody to Thanksgiving, you know, because that was such a, such a huge holiday. Um, it, it, yeah. It, 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 if, if I had things to do over again, I would have, I would have bought more machinery so that I could do more things. Uh, because so much of the stuff that, that I done was one off by hand. And uh, uh, being self-taught on a lot of things, um, you don't see the, the easy way. Or 
I can remember when I was first going, I uh, I bored and honed a lot of cylinders. And I wanted Sun and Home, the big one, with the stroker. It was $10,000. I didn't have $10,000. And I'd done that all by hand. And, and I, I think back on it, if I'd have bought the damn thing and financed it, I'd have saved hours of work. It paid for itself. And it had paid for itself. But I always, I didn't want to get over my head in debt. And because uh, you didn't, you know, there was times when things got lean and you had to. Uh, you had to figure it out. You had to figure it out. Yeah. You had to take in jobs that uh, just to pay the bills. But um, that's in the past. And, uh, it's it's pretty amazing, though, the amount of work that you do and have done and the things that you've taught us to do on the machinery that we use, because some of the machines are pretty archaic. Um, but they still work good. They still cut true. They still do what they're supposed to do. And, and we may not be modernized in some areas, but it, we've got a system down and it works pretty well and, and we can do the work that needs to be done. Well, a lot of the things have some of the machines that, that I have now, I needed when I was working on stuff early because of the fact that you needed to hone bushings and you needed to hone this or that. Now everything, you know, is almost ready to fit. Um, the Japanese and the stuff is, uh, if you took a batch of them apart and threw them in a pile, they interchange. There are the old motorcycles that were kind of hand built. You you know worked on a Harley or a Triumph or a BSA or Norton. They were the good ones were almost hand built. You had to fit everything to it, so you needed a lot of the uh, the different equipment. Uh, they have made it a lot easier on us nowadays with the quality of the componentry that we get to work with. And there's a lot of things that, that I think that myself and, and other guys that have been around as long as I have, we've gotten the benefit of learning how to fix a lot of stuff because we have worked on so many of the old school projects that you had to make fit. It's just like when, when the aftermarket chassis started in the industry for and I'm not talking about roll and I'm really not talking about Lagers. I'm talking about JP or some of the other guys that are, you know, the parts didn't fit, you know, and there was other things that, that we dealt with that didn't fit. You know, it was crazy because you, you had to learn how to get this A-arm in the frame 
because they weren't going to build you another one. And once you got it in there and you got the bolt in, it worked. But you had to come up with the old school ways, which thankfully I had a guy that, that taught me a lot of cool stuff. Well, when I was first went into working in a motorcycle shop, accessories didn't fit. You had to massage them to get get things on. I can remember um, shortly before I went to work for uh, the motorcycle shop, Valley Motors, uh, they had a racer that was working in the shop and he was trying to put a pair of side pipes on something and nothing lined up he couldn't fit and he uh, he got a little pissed and beat the pipes on a workbench you know destroyed them just destroyed them but uh, stuff like that it it didn't fit and you had to make it fit because if you sent it back they sent you another one that was made on the same jig that didn't work there were the the aftermarket uh, stuff uh, was poor at best. was very poor uh, the aftermarket people nowadays uh, most of the stuff fits like it like, like they advertise it like it's supposed to but uh, that has nothing to do with popping up 90s, I know. But, but no, dude, yeah, dude, well, yeah. the same thing. I, I had a bunch of manifolds built early on. They didn't fit. They didn't fit worth a shit, you know. So you had to make them all work. Yeah, I had to undo some of the things that were done and, and redo. You know, and you had a jig that... If you welded them and everything matched, it would have, but they didn't match the jig. It's like the guy took them out of the jig so I could weld them better. <laughs> but the welds were beautiful, but the parts didn't work. Right, right. So, uh, along with everything else, but I, uh, it, the pop-up work on at the time, with the styles, is was kind of uh, what you done to the ninety. You could do to the one ten, which you could do to the seventy, which you could do to so many different ones. Some of the motorcycle models had a similar engine in it. I done a lot of uh, big bores and and stuff for a motorcycle, and uh, uh, just. It just depends on you know what the guy wants. Uh, I put some big carburetors on a 350 twin for a guy that only worked when when he had his when it was twisted all the way open. They it wasn't That's what he wanted. He was a street bike. That's what he wanted, but it, you couldn't hardly ride the damn thing. It, but when you turned it on, it hauled ass. <laughs> Uh, but try riding it through traffic with it blopping and, and spitting. And well, that's the guy that calls up and wants a high rev top end motor and 
and he's a and he's a trail riding bottom end mid range rider, you know, and you have to explain it to him. Not always do they listen. Well, well when I when I worked for uh, Edison Dye, uh, I had a S ninety, kind of like the one I got out on the on the workbench on the workbench, and to step through ninety. No, this was a okay. like the white one. Okay, yeah, it's got the and it's a overhead valve. I mean, overhead cam, single cylinder. That thing would run at 60, 65 miles an hour on the freeway. But it wasn't legal. I had a Jeep that we took on trade that I drove that worked hard to get to 45. (laughs) And I used to think they don't judge on what the, the performance, the sign says no motorbikes. And the 90 was a motorbike. And and I always thought it's funny that that ninety would just whistle right along with traffic, but the but the Jeep <laughs> couldn't, 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 it. couldn't hardly pull itself. <laughs> well, well, Dad, everybody, I, I know you're not supposed to use Dad, but uh, he's my dad, and, and I love him to death, and I really really appreciate you sitting down and taking some time with me. And uh, I, I hope everybody enjoys this as much as as I have, just sitting here and listening and, and talking with him. And you got to realize that in the evolution of where we come from in the ATV world, uh, past, present, and future, in the past, we're, we're rolling back into the 70s where some of the youngsters that ride today don't even realize that we started way back then, you know, I mean, I was four years old in 1969 on my first ride. Uh, and you rolled into and your grandmother thought I was killing her. Well, yeah, but fortunately that didn't happen. And here we are. And, and, um, we're, we're having a good run. We're still going, we're still doing it. And, and you're still here teaching us and, and, and keeping us in line. And, and that's what matters. And, and again, I just appreciate everybody taking the time to, uh, to listen. Uh, there's a lot to teach there. There's a lot to listen. If you, if you take the time and, and understand some of the lessons, uh, they're subtle, but they're there. And, uh, thanks again, dad, for, for sitting down with us at ATV talk it means the world to me. My pleasure. Thank you very much. We'll talk to you later. The team here at ATV Talk would love your feedback. Please email us at hello at ATVTalkPodcast.com. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. If you did, don't forget to rate us on all available platforms and share us with your loved ones. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook for more ATV Talk news. See you next time.